Well, I am sure you've noticed that different families have different rules. Like one rule that I remember we had for our kids when they were young, and I'm sure it'll come back as my youngest gets a little bigger, but it was no standing or jumping on the couches. It doesn't matter if it's our couch, if it's a friend's couch, if it's the Costco couch. You don't jump on the couches. And I came to find that we were actually quite unique in this rule because a lot of places we would be, kids would be having a grand old time on the couches. And I remember when my kids were young, they would see these bouncing children and they would look at them with wide eyes like, Mom, what have they done? And I would eventually later on explain to them, look, different families have different rules. No, I am not going to give them a consequence. Uh, or I remember a rule that we had growing up when I was young was no chewing with your mouth open. When you're eating your food, you keep your lips closed. And it was drilled into us. I would, if we opened our mouth a little bit while we were eating, I remember we'd be told something like, don't chew like a cow. And then we'd have some kind of consequence. My dad's favorite was usually giving us push-ups or something like that. And eventually I learned that not everybody has that rule either. And then there's other rules like people have for food or for treats. Uh, I knew this friend that she had this rule for her kids that they were allowed to have one candy a year. A candy cane on Christmas Eve. And I am sure to remind my children of that whenever they feel deprived for the day. <laughs> and people have all kinds of rules, right? Like, you know, you've got to take off your shoes when you come in the house, or you need to call adults sir and ma'am, or TV rules. All these different rules, and whether we are thoughtful about it or not, these rules are there because we value something. It could be that we value order or cleanliness or health. It could be that we value tradition, you know, there's something that we've always done, or manners or whatever it is. Our rules are there and they show us, in a sense, what we value. Well, last week, we started studying the ultimate list of rules, what we call the Ten Commandments, the ten rules that God gave to his people in a dramatic display of his power at Mount Sinai. And not only did these rules give his people principles to live by, they showed us what God values, what he is all about, the way that he thinks would be best for his people to live. And even though these were given 3,000 plus years ago, what God values has not changed. Our God is still the same, and the principles that should govern the lives of his people is still the same. And that is why we should carefully study each and every one of these commandments and make sure that we are very practically applying them. I mean, ultimately, the success of our Christian life comes down to whether we understand and we obey the commands of God and we get our lives in line with what he says is right. And we should absolutely do that with these commands that come with an exclamation mark in a sense, right? The, the first rules that God gave his people. So last week we did that for commands number one through four. And today we are going to pick it up looking at commands number five through ten. So turn with me if you haven't to Exodus chapter 20 where we will read commandments 5 through 10, and we will see the response of the people as they received these commandments. 
So we're going to jump right into the middle of the Ten Commandments, starting in verse 12. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So this was an incredible, even a frightening experience for the Israelites. And God wanted it to be. He wanted it to be a big deal. He wanted them to take him serious especially as they are getting started as a nation. He wanted them to be set apart from the pagan nations that were around them. He wanted them to represent him well. He wanted to get them started off right. And so we saw, first of all, in the first four commandments that it, it comes down to loving God first and foremost, and all four of those commands connected to that in some way. And then as we get to these last six commands, it still connects to that, right, in the sense that we obey God because we love God, but he wants us to do so, to obey him in a very specific way, in the way that we treat each other, in the way that we live with and among each other. And these aren't the only commands that God gives us about how we should treat each other. Both in the Old Testament, he's going to give plenty more commands about this, and in the New Testament. But this is the starting point. And it's a starting point that Jesus said could be summarized in the phrase, to love your neighbor as yourself. So to love people the way you want to be loved. And you just think about these commandments, and of course, it fits within that, right? You want to be honored as a parent. You don't want to be killed. You don't want your stuff taken. I mean, all of these you want applied to yourself. So in seeking to, to really think through the appropriate application for these six commands, let's just start there. Do exactly what Jesus said would fulfill these commands. Love people like you love yourself. That's point number one. Love people like you love yourself. And I want to camp out there on what that really means and whether that's really the priority that it should be in our life before we even get to these six commands. Because if we did this well, not only would it fulfill these six commands, but really all that God commands is interconnected within this. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. So all that God has commanded, all the law and the prophets, really the whole Old Testament comes down to this, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. Or Paul says in Romans 13, verses eight through 10, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So love is the fulfilling of the whole law. And the way we are to love is the way that we love ourselves. And the thing is, we do that so very naturally that we don't even realize how much we love ourselves, but we do. We take care of our own needs, we take care of our own wants. Even when we don't take care of our needs, we're thinking about the fact that we wish we had our needs taken care of. Even when we are down about ourselves, or even if we were to go so far as to say we hate ourselves, the reality is we're just so down about ourselves because we're thinking about ourselves because we wish our life was different than it was and we care so much about our life. Ephesians 5.29 says that no one ever hated his own flesh. It's, it's in us. It's natural. It's just who we are. We love ourselves. But what's not natural is loving other people that way. And that's why we are reminded to do this, and that's why we are commanded to do this over and over again. It's important to remember how very central this is because we can often make our faith more individualistic. I mean, we think that we're doing a pretty good job if we have our time in the Bible each and every day, and we spend some time in prayer, and you know, we, we do some things that we know God wants us to do personally. We're thinking right, or we're serving at church. We're doing things, checking the box about our relationship with God. But it is so much more than that. I mean, think about the fact that God dedicated six of the 10 commandments to how we interact with the people in our lives, how we treat each other, how we love each other. And then he said, it fulfills the whole law if we love each other the way we love ourselves. This is a top priority that God has given us. Just to think of it as simply as possible, let's just say that God said to you, your top priority is you need to make good, delicious, healthy meals for your family or for anyone who comes into your home. Okay, that, that's your top priority. That's what God wants you to do. And you love God, and so you want to obey God, and so you take this seriously. So that means you're not going to just keep making the same old thing, right? You're not going to make these meals where your family's like, oh, that's not really my favorite. You're going to be thinking about this, right? You're going to be evaluating how you're doing at cooking. You're going to plan it out a little bit more. You're going to notice your family's response to the things that you make. And you're going to think way more about it than you probably ever have. If this is God's top priority for you, it is absolutely obvious what should take your time and your focus each and every day. And here we are with God's top priority for us, loving each other. Does that really take our time and focus each and every day? Is that really the priority in our life like it should be? Or is it more like, I mean, yeah, I, I try to love people, I mean, when there's an opportunity, like when it's like right there in front of me, I mean, yes, I'll say yes, I won't say no. Um, I mean, every once in a while I go out of my way. That would be like being okay with those meals where your family's like, eh, well, I don't know. I mean, it's not her best, it's okay. 
If this is what God wants you to do, it needs to be your focus. It needs to be your aim. It needs to be what you're filtering your life through. If this is missing, we are missing it entirely. Christianity is not Christianity if love for people is not at the core of who we are. And then a little like getting some Pinterest recipes or doing some other things would help us in our cooking. You know, getting practical, making some goals. Of course, that would help us with that specific goal that we had. And in that same way, we need to get specific about our love. We need to really think through how does God want me to improve in this? And of course, we have six commandments right here that are very important practical ways that God wants us to love the people in our life. So we're gonna go through each one and you'll see you have six subpoints under point number one. Each one of those is for one of the commands, but I'm gonna give you a specific wording about how we can apply each one of these. So starting with commandment number five, it, co it covers one of the most basic relationships in life the parent-child relationship. So let's read it again in verse 12. <clears throat> it says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor, that word literally means to give weight to something. So it's to give your parents the proper weight, the proper weight that is due them, the proper honor that is due them because of the position that they're in. So it's to esteem them, to respect them, maybe even to prize them, to value them. And it has no correlation to how great of parents they are. That's not in the prerequisite. It's just the role that they have God wants us to honor and to value. And it's more than just doing things to make your parents happy. Like if I do this or this, it'll make mom and dad happy and they'll be appeased and you know, I'm honoring them. I'm doing the things they want me to do. It's more than that. It's really, truly honoring them in our hearts, valuing them because of the position God put them in in our lives, and then we treat them differently because of that. So subpoint A, just write it down this way, value your parents. Value your parents. And of course, this starts when children are young. We teach children to honor and to obey their parents. But as you know, these commands are given to adults. So the idea is adults, you should be honoring your parents. You should be honoring your aging parents all throughout their life. And the motivator is given here in this text that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In other words, this is what God wants. This is what's best for society. It's best for relationships. And this is what God is going to bless. For some of you, your parents are no longer with you. I think there's still a way to value them or to honor them in your heart, uh, to remember them graciously, to speak of them graciously. But perhaps your most practical application would be helping the next generation to honor their parents, especially if you have a close relationship with some of the younger generation. I'm thinking especially grandparents, if you're a grandma or if you're an aunt. I mean, the last thing you would want to do is undercut the parent's authority in order to be a fun grandma, right? Or to be a cool aunt. I mean, even if you think the parent's rules are really silly, you still want to come alongside those parents and help 
the children to honor their parents. You want to help them. You want them to see that, not to see that when parents' rules are silly, that's when they can stop obeying their parents. Come alongside them and help these young children to see that they should truly honor their parents. But for those of us who do have parents with us, or even in-laws, I think one of the best ways to value them, to honor them, would be to treat them the way that you want to be treated when your children are adults. And so to think, do I really care for my parents the way I hope my kids will care for me? Do I really help them the way I hope my kids would want to help me? Do I talk about them how I hope my kids would talk about me? Do I call them? Do I visit them? Do I show affection for them? In all the ways that you would hope your kids would want to. And for the really tough relationships, and I know there are some, perhaps it's just thinking, am I willing to show a kind of graciousness or even a willingness to forgive that I hope that my kids would show me if I ever offended them? For all of us that have parents still with us, I think it would be good if we just tackled one of those a little bit better. If we tackled one of those things, it would probably stir within our hearts a bit more honor. And as we did that, we would be more inclined to show more honor, to continue to value them in our actions. For everyone, this is going to be a challenge. I mean, it's here in the Ten Commandments. God knew it would be a challenge. If it was no big deal, if we all just did this naturally, it would not be one of the Ten Commandments. But it's so important, it's one of the key ways that we can treat people the way we want to be treated, starting close to home. And then we get to commandment number six, and it switches gears a bit. If you kind of scanned up at the previous commandments, you would see that they are a bit more wordy and explanatory. And as we get to commandment number six, it just, it's two words in Hebrew that amount to never murder. It's simple, it's clear, we all kind of know what it means, never murder. We know that that's wrong. But just to think through it a little bit more, the word murder is not the generic word for kill, because we know at times that is sanctioned for war or for punishment for a crime. It is, this word is more in relation to the unauthorized taking of life, uh, manslaughter, or even taking of life due to foolish negligence. The thing is, of course, God is the giver of all life, and so it's not ours to take. It's not ours to take flippantly or selfishly or out of anger. And not only is it not ours to take, but each and every person is created in the image of God. And that gives them worth, and that gives them value, that gives them meaning. And so we should see each and every person like that. Um, I put it this way for point number letter B, treat people with dignity. Treat people with dignity because they are created in the image of God, because God has given them life. That's how we need to see their life. And three ways I thought to apply this, not just to not murder, but to treat people with dignity. First would be to value human life in such a way that we would Never get behind or condone the taking of life that should not be, uh, of course, an unborn human life. 
that we would never be okay with that. Or even through something like assisted suicide. I mean, these things are very real in our culture. They're even sometimes seen as a good thing in our culture. But we need to stand with God on this and say, this is wrong and this is murder. Of course, huge issues come up within this command about when is the taking of life justified? A book that I would recommend if you have questions about this would be Dr. Moeller's book on the Ten Commandments called Words from the Fire, a great book that covers a lot of the different aspects of this command. But suffice it to say, we never should get behind anything that is clearly murder. A second application would be taking this command serious enough to be careful with entertainment that normalizes or glorifies murder. We do not want to become numb to this, numb to a thing that God says is clearly wrong. So we need to know our hearts and to be careful. And then third, and perhaps most stinging, is making sure we are obeying this command all the way to the intent of the law. And Jesus has a bit to say about that in Matthew 5. So why don't you turn there with me? We'll spend a little bit of time in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be jumping into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And then we will also look at this same text when we get to commandment number 7. So Matthew 5, verse 21 through 22, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So in this text, we see anger, we see insults, we see derogatory words, and Jesus connected those to the offense of murder. I mean, listen how he connected it. He says, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then he says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I mean, he really closely connected those two things. In other words, if you have this ugliness in your heart, it might not be murder in action, but it is murder of the heart. It's that animosity that's flowing from the same ugly spot within us. And of course, the reality is we're going to get mad in life, right? We're going to get mad at people. We're going to get mad at things. And the question is, what do we do with it? Do we process our anger the way God would want us to? Do we process it with prayer? Do we keep a godly character in the midst of it? Or do we lash out? Do we get a little crazy? Do we say things that we shouldn't say? Do people become victims of our anger? And nowadays, it's easy to have that response and to think that it doesn't do much damage because the people we're angry at are people we don't even know, right? It's the people out there that we disagree with. Um, it could be people on social media, it could be politicians, it could be people in the news, and we see them and we hear what they're talking about and we are mad and we will just throw verbal rocks all over the place. But the question is, though they never hear it, are we treating people with dignity? Or are we having that ugly, 
anger and hatred in our hearts. We need to treat the people that we disagree with with dignity. Even our enemies, right? If we were to consider them our enemies, what does the Bible say? It says we are to pray for our enemies. And that might be the most practical application as we think of when we get mad, when we get angry, is pray. Pray for that person. Pray for the things that you disagree about. Go to God in prayer. We need to treat all people with dignity. Treat the unborn with dignity. Treat the sick with dignity. The people that make us mad with dignity. We want to never murder in action or in heart. Commandment number seven, it goes to the realm of marriage. And it says, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus addresses this in Matthew 5 as well. So I imagine you're there. Look down to verse 27. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And of course, this applies to women just as much as it applies to men. But the idea is God created marriage to be intimate and to be exclusive, and adultery 100% undermines God's design. Whether that's actual adultery, where someone who is married becomes intimate with somebody who is not their spouse, or whether it's adultery of the heart, someone who is desiring someone who is not their, their spouse whether it's desiring them in their mind, desiring them with their emotions. It is undermining God's design. Matthew 5, 29, as the passage goes on, it says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And of course, we know if we took out our right eye, our left eye could still sin. So that's not the point, is to take out our eyeballs. The point is, be ruthless with this sin. Do whatever it takes to guard yourself from anything that sparks an interest for anyone that is not your spouse. With great resolve, letter C, be a faithful spouse. Be a faithful spouse. And if you're not married, an application that you could write down if you wanted was to cheer on faithful marriages. Cheer them on because a faithful marriage is what brings honor to God. Cheer them on when they invest time and they invest energy into their marriage. And also, whether it seems like it or not, if you're single, it would be important to internalize this command because marriage could be right around the corner. It might not seem like it, but it could be right there. And if it's something you want, then it's something that's good and it's something to pray for. But as you look ahead and as you look around, only consider the man who is godly, and who will do a faithful marriage God's way. Don't consider the guy just because he's hot. Don't consider the guy who's going to take you on fun dates because he's a blast. Don't take, consider the guy who's going to give you great gifts. Picture, picture wanting to only marry the man who is godly and who wants to please God doing marriage God's way. That is the standard. And it is a timeless and good standard, even if our culture says something entirely different. Which is a good reminder for all of us. Our culture does say something entirely different. And we have to be careful with the voices that we are letting come into our minds constantly, and especially with 
entertainment and shows and movies and books and whatever else, absolutely it is glorifying adultery and all kinds of sexual sin. And God does not find this amusing, nor should his people. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Marital faithfulness is a big deal to God. And it goes without saying, though I should probably say it anyway, that faithfulness is not just about not pursuing the forbidden relationship. It's about actively pursuing the marriage that you do have. So be actively faithful, if you know what I mean. I'll let you ponder the application of that. Moving to commandment number eight, it says you shall not steal. So in all likelihood, this command was given with God looking ahead to when his people would be in the land and they would have property, they would have possessions, they would be prosperous, and he wants them to treat each other right, to not take stuff from each other. And of course, we don't think of ourselves as thieves, but it is good to think through. Do I really obey this command as much as I think I do? Am I ever found to be taking things that I do not have permission to take, that I'm not supposed to take? Um, it could be stealing ideas and claiming them as your own. It could be taking silly stuff, like a towel from the gym, uh, office supplies from work, clippings from a neighbor's plant, I mean, whatever it is. It could be working the system, whatever system, to get more than is rightfully yours or to get more of a discount than you should actually have. Just think, whatever it is, even if it's a gray area where you're like, well, is this really stealing? Does this really break this commandment? Think, is it worth it? Whatever the thing is, gaining a little bit more, having a little more of whatever it is, even having a lot more, is it worth possibly breaking this commandment of God? Of course not, no. It's never worth it. It doesn't matter if no one will miss it. It doesn't matter if no one will notice it. It doesn't matter if you will use this thing better than the person who originally had it. We are not supposed to be takers. In fact, for subpoint D, write it down like this and I'll explain. Be a giver, not a taker. The thing is, stealing is not just a practical issue of taking things, it is a sinful heart issue. And Christians are not supposed to be greedy. We're supposed to instead be generous. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 4, 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the standard is not just don't take from people. It's are you giving to people? Are you really sharing with people in need? Are you really seeking to bless people? And I know some of you are amazing at this. There are people in this room who I know do this so well. They are sharing with people in need. They are bringing people meals. They are helping them out. They are truly loving other people the way that they want to be loved. And that encourages and blesses all the people around them. 
And all of us need to strive for that more. It should be a constant mindset we have. How can I be a giver, not a taker? And if you don't feel like you're in the groove of this already, maybe a good goal is just to think once a week. Once a week, how can I make sure that I am going out of my way to be sacrificial, to be helpful, to share with somebody who needs something? And that will take us far beyond not stealing, but to having a heart that pleases God by our generosity. All right, commandment number nine says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So write it down like this, and then we'll think it through some more. Speak the truth. Letter E, speak the truth. So God's people are getting started as a community together, and as is the case, unfortunately, in a community, you have sinful people, and there's going to be problems. And so it's going to make sense that there would be courts that are going to need to administer justice. And at the time, that very much depended on having honest eyewitnesses. So how does God want his people to operate? Well, certainly not like a dramatic Jerry Springer show, right? Where false accusations are going all over the place, and there's dishonesty, and there's no real justice happening. Of course not. God wants his people to be civil, to be just, to be fair, to be honest. He wants them dealing with issues rightly. He wants people being treated rightly. He doesn't want accusations ruining the reputation of people. He doesn't want the innocent having to pay for a crime that they didn't commit. He doesn't want that those who are actually guilty going free. And that very much depended on the honesty of eyewitnesses. So how does this apply to us today? Well, of course, if you are dragged into a legal battle, you should speak the truth. But beyond that, to think, am I really using my words? Am I really saying things that are true and that are helpful versus damaging and harmful? That's a clear New Testament command. Ephesians 4.29, I'm sure you know the passage well. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk. And there is so much corruption that can come from our words. We can damage people's reputations by sharing information about them, by sharing false information about them, by sharing our opinions about people we can damage their reputation. We can get people in trouble with, stay, with saying stuff that is not ours to share. With little white lies, with exaggerations, we can cause problems. Or an interesting application I ran across, I was reading a passage in Exodus 23 that's fleshing out this command to not bear false witness. I'll read it to you. Exodus 23, verses one through three, it says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So basically, don't say things deceitfully because you're going along with the crowd. But listen to verse three. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So in other words, you shouldn't even bear false witness for someone 
because you feel bad for them. And in that moment, if you were in that situation, you could see how it would almost feel right. If I bore false witness in that situation, I mean, that's got to be okay. I mean, just picture how this plays out, maybe in practical terms. Uh, if you have a child or a grandchild, they have an assignment or they have something, some responsibility that they were supposed to have taken care of, and they failed. They didn't do it. That's when it is not the time to go to the authority or the teacher or whoever it was and to make some excuse for them, or worse, lie for them. Not only are they not taking responsibility, but you are bearing false witness because you love them, because you feel bad for them. Or I think of how it can be tempting when we see people at odds, you know, maybe two friends at odds, and we can get in the middle of people's drama, and we try to fix things. And so we start saying things, but it's not entirely true, right? We're saying something to one person, we're saying something to another, thinking that maybe we can fix this problem, but what we're doing it with is lies. It's not the truth. Or even covering for someone, uh, a friend who's late to work, covering with some kind of lie about what didn't really happen. It's easy to think that it's okay if we have these half-truths, which are really like half-lies, which are really just full lies. And what it is, is it's bearing false witness. The thing is, God values the truth, and he wants his people to be honest. And we should speak in ways that fit the occasion, that benefit the hearers. We should speak the truth. Lastly, number 10, there's a lot in it, so let's look back at it. Exodus 20, verse 17, I'll read it. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Some of that context seems quite obvious to us in its application, and others is a little more foreign, but we can picture all of it. Don't covet, don't envy, don't desire what's not yours, whether it be someone's house, whether it be their stuff, whether it be the relationships that they have, what their life looks like, and of course, anything, it says at the end, anything that is your neighbor's, and that covers it all. So don't covet someone's social status. Don't covet their giftedness. Don't covet their job. Don't covet their health. Don't covet the fact that their life might seem easier. Don't covet their looks. Looking at them saying, oh, I just wish I aged like her. I just wish that I had her hair. Whatever it is, what it comes down to is we're not being content with what God chose to give us. And we're looking at what they have and saying, that should be mine. I really wish that was mine and not hers. And the worst part about it is when we see other people having some good stuff, it's when instead of looking at them and being happy for them, we're just sad for ourselves. And it's just selfishness. When we see people and the good that they have, we need to not make it about ourselves. One way to apply this is to get our eyes off of ourselves and really work, letter F, to be happy for our friends. Be happy for your friends. Commandment number 10, of course, should make us want to avoid all types of coveting. 
the kind that happens in the quiet of our heart when we're seeing a home makeover show, when we see other stuff that we want, when we go to the mall, wherever it is, it should make us want to stop that. However, the wording in this command is very much about wanting what your neighbor has, specifically what they have, and wanting it for yourself. It is a personal heart issue, but it's a personal heart issue that relates to the relationships in our life, that relates to the people that we interact with. And that's why being happy for your friends will hopefully keep you from going into the realm of turning it into something about yourself. Ephesians 5.3 says, let covetousness not even be named among you. It's just not the kind of people that we should be as Christians. It just doesn't even make sense to think we are people who know that God is the giver of all good things. That means that we should trust him with what he has chosen to give us and what he has chosen to give them. And it means that God has given us good things. And instead of focusing on what we don't have, what we wish we had, we should be thanking God for what we do have, for what he has given us. And of course, it doesn't make sense because as Christians, we are people who are not focused on storing up treasures on earth right here and right now. And so we shouldn't be greedy and wanting, wanting, wanting. We are people who are focused on the next life. We're storing up treasures in heaven. That's where we should be wanting more stuff, not here and now. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, guard against all covetousness. And that's what we need to do. We have to guard ourselves because it comes up at the most random times, anytime, it just sneaks up on us. I mean, you could be in the midst of a bunch of godly women, you could be at small groups and someone is giving a praise report and all of a sudden you find your heart coveting what they have, what's going on in their life, even coveting their spiritual success in a sense. We could be coveting their success in all kinds of ways. We could be coveting when we walk in their house and we see how beautiful it is or how organized they are or how they seem to have it all together or we see their cute outfits. Whatever it is, it just sneaks up on us and we want what other people have so very quickly and we need to guard ourselves against all covetousness and stop turning it into an opportunity to think of ourselves and instead be glad for the person. Which really brings us back to the umbrella over all these. If we want to not covet, if we want to not murder, if we want to not steal, if we want to not do any of these things that we should not do, it comes down to really thinking of the people around us rightly, really wanting to treat them rightly, really focusing on them and not just ourselves, really loving them the way we want to be loved. And so maybe there is a command or two or three where you thought about it and you could see how you could love people better in that specific way. Even in that teeny tiny way, I could work to love the people better in my life. Or maybe over the next week, it's good just to pray through these. God, show me how I can love the people in my life better through these six commands that I know are super important to you. But before we close... I want to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites real quick. I want to read verses 18 through 21, where it describes the Israelites' experience when they receive these commandments, because when we do, we're reminded that these are not just little rules like family rules. 
These are a much bigger deal than that. So let's read it, verses 18 through 21. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So this was terrifying. I mean, just picture this. Thunder, flashes of lightning, the sound of a loud trumpet. The mountain is smoking. Deuteronomy 5 explains this historical event as well, and it said that the mountain was on fire and they thought it was going to consume them. And it talked about how loud God's voice was. And some commentaries talk about how his voice was known to be deafening, that it was frightening to hear. Like people, you know, you'd want to cover your ears when you hear a loud noise. It's a scary thing to hear. And that's why the people said, they don't want God to speak to them anymore. Verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses has an interesting response. Look at it, verse 20. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So do not fear. He's not going to kill you, right? They just said, lest we die, don't let him talk to us. Do not fear. God's not going to kill you. But you should be afraid. And in that moment, they knew that. They knew that it was a big deal not to sin. You should be afraid so that you do not sin. And that is, as we read these Ten Commandments, that's what we need to have, that same fear of God. Our last point, be afraid to disobey God's commands. Just put yourself on that mountain in your mind for a moment. You're hearing God's massive voice. There's the thunder. There's the lightning. The mountain is on fire. It's smoking. The mountain is trembling. It's shaking. And you are trembling. And in that moment, you're just getting a taste of who God is. Because remember, the people were kept off at a distance from God, from the mountain. And as you imagine being there, actually shaking, I want you to capture that awe that you feel, that fear, and think, that is your God. That is the God who calls you to obey him. That is the God who says, love me with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Now hold that thought. I want to take you to a different image, maybe an image that would be more familiar to you. Picture yourself like a child, and you know that you have just disobeyed dad. And you're about to walk into the room where your father is because you know that he wants to talk to you. And you know that he loves you, but he takes sin seriously. And he gives consequences. Now put those two images together. The dad that you're about to walk into the room with 
is the God who made Mount Sinai shake. It's the God whose voice is deafening, whose power is overwhelming. That's the God that you're sinning against. Yes, he is a loving father, an extremely loving father, but he takes sin seriously. And that's how we should read these Ten Commandments when we come across them. That's how we should obey God in all the commandments we read in Scripture. Like 2 Corinthians 7 says, we should be bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's what we need. We need that fear of God if we're really going to take our holiness serious, if we're going to do this well. Or Deuteronomy 5, as I said, it's, it's taking this same historical event, but we get God's commentary on the Israelites' fear. And God says, Deuteronomy 5, 29, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And oh, that we had such a heart as that always, to really fear God, to keep his commandments, so that it might go well with us. Or as Deuteronomy 6.24 says, for our good always. God's commands are truly for our good. We should never think of them as some random family rules, like the rules about candy and couches that come from some random parental motivations. Every command of God stems from his unchanging character, and it aligns with what is forever good and right and true. And so it should actually be our joy to obey God, to first love him first and foremost, and to obey him by loving each other the way we want to be loved in all six of these key ways. And we do it because we love God. We do it because we fear God. We do it because it's what's best for us, and we do it because it's what's right. I pray we do that more and better this week. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your commands. I know at times we think we don't like them. We think we want to do things our way. But ultimately, you've put your spirit within us, and we know that your way is the best way. And so, God, I pray that you would help us every time we see what it is you want us to do in your word, that we will gladly, joyfully do it, knowing all the things, that we do it because we love you, we do it because we should, because we fear you, because you are a father who takes our sin seriously. And we do it because we know it is what's best and right and true. It aligns with your character. God, we want to do that more. Help us to see how we're not. Help us to be motivated to do it more. In Jesus' name, amen.